house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada water. Ethan Lerner. Good afternoon. My associate, Ethan Dwight Arno. Afternoon. Ethan lost his son last week. I'm sure you heard about it. I'm gonna offer a reward. Half a million, whatever I can get against the house. I want this guy to feel that he's hunted down. Your client is going around photographing damaged SUVs. He scared the daylights out of a Saudi diplomat. Your son, Lucas, if somebody killed him, what would you want to have happen to them? Why are you doing this? No one else is doing anything. I thought that was why we got lawyers. I had to go away for a little while. Will you tell me what's wrong? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows it's still 2020 as far as awards are concerned. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here as always with the fireflies that I keep in a jar, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello. First of all, how dare you call me those fireflies? The second I read that in our outline, I was like, "Oh God!" Um, <laughs> it only uh, means we'll that, that I will I will follow you till my uh, untimely death. That is what. Yep. It means. Until Mark Ruffalo kills you. Yes. Exactly. Um, God to be killed by Mark all, Ruffalo. Like what a way to go. Oh, uh, uh, stab me, Daddy. Murder um, me, Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, anyway, we of course it would. Here's the thing: it would still be 2020 in award season if it was a normal calendar, regardless of the stupid calendar where right. Oscars aren't voted on until oh yeah March. J- don't get me wrong; that is not a commentary on this weird year that we're having. That is a commentary on right. the Parasite way it goes. Won the 2019 right. Best Picture Oscar, right. not the 2020 Best Picture Oscar. Real it's ones by know the year of the film, not. Yeah the ceremony real ones know and our audience is all real ones so uh you know you know it's it's you know maybe that should be our uh listener fandom (laughs) they're just real ones the real ones (laughs) you like that better than the thobbies um yeah i guess uh our fans are the thobbies and their alt is the throbbies wow Wow. That's why I don't I don't like, like either one of those because things. it sounds like throb. <laughs> and unless we're going to be yeah. talking about Janet Jackson, throb. I it always makes me think of that. Thank you for affirming that for me. Yes. Yeah. Maybe we should change our theme song. <laughs> Just to throb. <laughs> yeah. That'd be amazing. Uh no anyway. no explanation why. Right, here, exactly. Here, folks, we will never mention it again. Exactly. Um all right. We're doing a kind of a momentous uh, pick for this week for our first episode of 2021 we are of calendar it feels i was saying this before we were recording it feels a little bit like a reset it's our first episode of the new year yep yeah uh but this is a very we're doing reservation road a movie that is probably the deepest cut that 
we've done in quite a while. But it's very formative to what this podcast is. Joe, can you uh, uh, illuminate us who might be unaware why? I sure can. So I went into the archives on this Head Oscar Buzz. As, as many of you know, but maybe not everybody, this Head Oscar Buzz began its life as a Tumblr account that was literally just me posting photos of, of movie posters and just being like, this had Oscar buzz. Remember when this had the Oscar days buzz? of the single service Tumblr, where it was like uh, the post itself, based off of what the name of the Tumblr was, yeah. was a punchline. One right? of my favorite eras in uh, interneting, like all the for all the things that are you know good and bad about the internet. I really loved the era of the single service Tumblr. I always say that w- I wish I had done. Uh, one on movie theater marquees in movies, which I find fascinating, and it's it's one of those things There's that I almost a Twitter account for that. I I yes yeah nowadays even single service Twitter has sort of gone away now that Twitter has just become like toxicity on demand, and that's sort of what Twitter is there for right now. <laughs> you scroll, and it's like toxicity on demand, toxicity on demand, no context succession gifs, <laughs> toxicity on demand. I do love no context succession gifs. Um, but uh, at that era, they were sort of like, there was a lot of them, and I was, as I say, this was, I looked at the archive, it was January of 2012, which, like, were we ever so young to be in January, to be in Obama's first term? Are you kidding me? Like, crazy. Um, January 2012, at my job, didn't have a lot to do that day, and I was sort of, as I was sort of tooling around on Twitter and whatever, and I sort of, whatever for whatever reason, thought of the movie Reservation Road from 2007. And at this point, again, January 2012, this movie is not that old. This movie is only five years old, and yet it had completely passed out of my mind, out of the cultural mind. Like, it's as if it had never existed. And it was just like, it's so, and I've just had the thought of like, it's so weird that this movie doesn't, exist now like as completely devoid of cultural connotations and yet in the lead up to that year it was absolutely predicted for oscars it wasn't really mm-hmm. predicted i i had initially in my memory my memory had built this movie up that it, everybody thought it was the front runner from like a year ahead that wasn't quite the case even among people who thought it would do well like atonement was the big year ahead prediction mm-hmm. for focus features and that one panned out more, you know, somewhat at least. It got the Best Picture nomination. Um, But Reservation Road was definitely on the radar for everybody, especially for acting awards, because this cast, as we'll get into, um, two of them had Oscars, and one of them had been nominated twice by this point, and then there was Mark Ruffalo, who everybody was just like, when's he going to get nominated? Because he's great. And so I was just like, the gulf between the expectations for this movie and what happened is so funny to me. And I was like, well, I could either tweet out just like, remember when this had Oscar buzz and just a, you know, reservation road? I'm like, or I could just do a Tumblr. <laughs> and <laughs> on a whim, I decided I'm just going to like create a Tumblr. And so I did. And I, and it's this had Oscar buzz. And I, I'm looking at the archive now and that first like week I did, uh, like, dozens of these things it was one of those things where it was just like i'm just going to get it out of my system and like if you go to the the very first uh month in the archive in january 2012 for this at oscar buzz i've got like and i'm trying to count them up on the fly which is a very dicey proposition um 
So yeah, it's like almost 70 entries in the very first month because I was just like, I'm just going to like barf this all out. And there was so many of them to do. But what I think is interesting, Chris, is that of my first five entries, this is only the second one we've ever done on this podcast as a a podcast episode. Oh God, I'm trying to think what the other one could be. What's another like definitional This Had Oscar Buzz movie from the... uh, 2000s from the early 2000s. Well, it's not the shipping news because famously we are we're going to uh, Susan Lucci the shipping news on this podcast, right? Um. Okay, so you started the Tumblr in January 2012, so it can't be. I don't imagine that your first five entries would be a 2011 movie, so it's 2010 and before, right? One that we've done, so it's not going to be like World Trade Center, right? Um, Amelia? No, we haven't done Amelia. We haven't um, done Amelia. Too early for cake. It um, stars one, uh, at the time Oscar winner and one future Oscar winner. Um, and they, is it a spacey? Oh, it's a uh, pay it forward. No, it's not Pay It Forward, although it should be. Pay It Forward was yeah. definitely one of my early uh, entries in this, I'm pretty sure, although now I'm not seeing it. Um, oh, weird. Anyway, no, this is a, uh, there's some romance happening between this uh, these two leads that I just mentioned and uh, questionable accent work and a foreign locale and war uh not far and away no um, i know the four feathers is on there we got to do the four feathers soon. the four feathers is one of my f- top five yes i was i the, one of the first five that uh mm. I'll, I'll mention once we once you guess this one um the title <sighs> okay, is war. very peculiar it's one of those titles that is its own punchline kind of i'm and... gonna slap myself in the head as soon as there's an instrument in the title. Oh, Captain Corelli's mandolin. It's Captain Corelli's mandolin. Yes. So yeah. this is only the bambina. Exactly. This is only the second uh, after Captain Corelli's mandolin of those first five entries that I did. The other three are things we lost in the fire, which we need to do. Uh, you mentioned the four feathers, and for whatever reason, I put message in a bottle. The Kevin Costner, Robin Wright, uh, Paul Newman. Film I would have to bottle. research that, but I'm pretty sure that might have been a February release, but pushed back. I think that's true. I think that's true. Kevin Costner, the thing about Kevin Costner, which will eventually do like the upside of anger, even with shit like The Postman. Yeah. Like, he shows up in a movie that seems uh, glossy and people are like, I don't know, maybe. Yep. Because as he's one of that rare uh, fraternity of actor-directors who Oscar intensely loved briefly. Well, you know what I mean? Like, yes. Like, Redford is sort of that, too, although Redford's appeal, obviously, is much more broad and far-reaching than that. But even still, like, Robert Redford was, like, the quintessential actor-director. And Costner fit into that. And... Uh, much more unpleasantly, but Mel Gibson sort of fit into that as well. And those people, you know, retain that Oscar buzz. Like, it just, you can't scrub it off of them. But anyway, yeah, so I've always, I've wanted to do Reservation Road on this podcast for a while. And 
It's also, from our listener's choice, the worst performing movie we've ever had on a listener's choice poll. And I'm positive that it's because (laughs) no one knows what it is. (laughs) Yeah, well, the title certainly doesn't uh, describe anything. And also the fact that the very next year, there was a movie called Revolutionary Road that did get Oscar nominations, even though that was also somewhat of a divisive movie. And so that, I think, really helped just sweep the ashes of Reservation Road off of the map and like no one uh no one thought about it anymore because if you thought even if your b- brain said Reservation Road the other part of your brain was like I think you mean Revolutionary Road and just like <laughs> and then you just moved on and like thought of a different thing and I want to describe the poster not the poster as exists on IMDb for whatever reason but the one that I used for the um for the blog where I think it was the DVD cover, but it's... Um, the DVD cover is the one that looks like pieces of shattered glass. Yes, so it's a it's a windshield that has been cracked and splintered. And each of the three... It's, I feel so bad because like it says at the top, like, focus features, and then it's one of those things where it's the names of the stars. So it's like Joaquin Phoenix, Mark Ruffalo, Jennifer Connelly, Mira Sorvino, except Mira Sorvino isn't on the poster. And that always, like, OCD bugs me when it, either A... Uh, the person whose name is on the poster isn't on the poster, like yeah, on the, if the if above the, floating the title, heads right. and the names above the floating heads are off by one. Also, that that was what I was going to say. If they if don't it's a match bunch up of names, and you only have three floating heads, that's fine. Sure, that's fine. but like this one, where or it's like, like Mira Sorvino needs to have an and because then yes. It's yes. like she's going to be she's the per- she would she's the perfect candidate for an and in this movie because a she's not in the movie as much as the other ones and b she's an Oscar winner so like it should have mm-hmm. worked but anyway so yes so this poster is already stressing me out because it has the four names spaced out so that you would think like each of them would be under it but it's not and also it's in the wrong order it's Phoenix Connolly Connolly's in the middle for whatever reason making you think like she's a much more prominent character than she is we'll get into what a problem it is that you don't really get much of her in this movie at all uh right for a couple of reasons um and then of course it's like from the director of hotel rwanda which we'll totally get into the terry george of it all and a positive quote from pete hammond if you'll believe it like (laughs) (laughs) if you were going to get a pull quote for reservation road you were going to get it from pete hammond so peter travers yeah exactly so yeah so we're going to talk about reservation road at long last uh i guarantee you very few of our listeners have seen it, but that's fine. That's what we're here for. We're Unless here to talk you're like it. me and you watched it for free on Peacock. Yes, that's we both watched it streaming on Peacock. And I will say, uh, I don't think mine had commercial breaks. Did you have? Does yours have commercial breaks? Do you pay for pre- for? Peacock? I certainly do not. <laughs> I don't either. And it was very jarring to have not even thirty seconds after the like death of the child at the beginning of this movie uh very like sunshiny cheery ad for life insurance <laughs> maybe i did um, have ads and i just wasn't noticing the it commercial breaks uh when watching this movie and peacock are very inappropriately placed <laughs> yeah i i keep threatening to do an article on that about which streaming services that have commercial breaks do it m- more or less obtrusively, and I feel like Peacock is one of the worst ones. Where like there IMDb is no rhyme or reason. TV is really bad. <laughs> is it Tubi that does it pretty well? It's one of those Never Voodoo, something like that. One of those, uh, you know, 
ones on your streaming device that you can watch and there's no rhyme or reason to it. But one of them, I remember thinking like, oh, they do commercials pretty, uh, as, as unobtrusively as possible. Anyway, um, let's do, let's do the plot description early this time, just so we can really like jump into it. Yeah. We're definitely doing a movie that, uh, uh, none of you have seen. Right. How do we know none of you have seen it? Because it made a hundred and twenty. Uh, not millions. Don't not million. do not say millions. Imagine if this movie made a hundred and twenty million. Sorry, the movie made a hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Thousands. Crazy. Didn't even play forty theaters. Yeah, it's uh not did not do well. It 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 really truly just disappeared from the face of the earth so quickly. And with a cast like this, and with a director coming off of you know, a success like Terry George was becoming. Uh, that's essentially why we do this podcast, because it's just like, why? How? How did this happen? What's going on? So we'll get into it basically cratering at uh, its festival premiere as well. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I'm going to task you in a second with doing the 60-second plot description, but before that, I'm going to say that we're talking about Reservation Road. It was directed by Terry George, written by... John Burnham Schwartz and Terry George, with stars like Mark Ruffalo and Joaquin Phoenix and Jennifer Connelly and Mira Sorvino, and of course, our darling Elle Fanning. Uh, this is our, what did I say, our third Elle Fanning movie after? Yes, we are a Sisters Fanning podcast, even though I don't think we've done a Dakota movie. We before. should do a Dakota. We've got to do, we've got to do uh, American Pastoral at some point, speaking of Jennifer Connelly. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, we love our Elle Fanning. And this premiered, world premiered, at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 13th, 2007. It opened a month later on October 19th, 2007, and was never heard from again. So, as I bring up my timer, one second, um, one minute and zero seconds. All right, Chris, are you ready to... Uh, illuminate our audience on the plot of the film Reservation Road. New year, new me. I am going to get better at the 60-second plot description in this podcast. Pretty sure oh. I said the same thing last year. Is that year. a resolution? We need a resolution, Chris. Yeah. Love it. All right. Thank you, Aaliyah. Yes, exactly. Thank you for everything, Aaliyah. Okay, uh, if you are ready, I will start your time now. Okay, so uh, Reservation Road follows two different families, the Lerner families, which is led by Joaquin Phoenix and Jennifer Connelly. Um, uh, immediately at the beginning of the movie, their son uh, gets hit in a hit-and-run. Turns out the driver in the hit-and-run is Dwight, played by Mark Ruffalo. He was trying to get out of the way of a vehicle, um, uh, and his son was in the car when they hit the little boy. He drives off and uh, doesn't uh, stop and then is racked with guilt for it. Meanwhile, the Lerner family is uh, grieving. They seconds. still have a daughter named Emma. Um, anyway, the father, Ethan, uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix, uh, falls down the rabbit hole of like online chat rooms and grief support groups, and it, it gets more and more morose. Meanwhile, his wife, Grace, is just like sad all the time. Uh, Dwight ends up being the lawyer trying to support the Lerner families to pressure the police Ten department seconds. to uh, d find out who it is. And then he's like, oh, it's definitely Dwight. But Dwight leaves a video for his son saying, hey, I did this. I'm going to go get arrested. Um, and then uh, he leaves... Uh, Dwight to kill himself, but we don't know if he does. I think he says in the video that he's going to jail. So I think I think we're led to believe that he does not kill himself. But Ethan, rather because he's like, maybe I don't want to kill him 
because he has this whole thing of the maximum sentence that his son's killer might face in jail is right. like 10 years right. for a hit and run crime. Right. And that is not sufficient to him. Um, so he kind of goes vigilante, but then when he can kill Dwight, he doesn't. He like has some reservations about it um, and then gives him the gun to potentially kill himself. But the movie ends with Dwight's son seeing his confession video. Right. Right. Dwight's son played by uh, One Life to Live star Eddie Alderson, which I need to mention because I mention my soap peoples in this uh, in this podcast. I um, love your stories. I love my stories and I miss One Life to Live every day. Okay. Um, yeah. So I wrote down in my notes, this is the most this would be a TV show today movie we've ever done. And we've done a few movies that I've said that this would be a TV show if it was made today. But like absolutely this one for a billion reasons one of which is the uh, the economy for a movie about four adults that you know go through feelings like this mm-hmm. like doesn't really exist anymore but also like how many limited series or like there's one on showtime literally right now with brian cranston where his son you know hit and runs uh, a mobster son and then they got to figure shit out and it's just like that's just what like this would have been a tv series on like not even a particularly good <laughs> uh limited series on television but like it's such a it's such a tv plot in a way that like i don't mean to sound derisive but i kind of do what just first of all i think it probably would be better as a tv show because you can actually go into some of these things that it glosses over with some level of depth like this movie both is lives. like a barisk 102 minutes it um, is I, I kind mean, of thankfully because it's not a good movie. Yeah, 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 because it's not good and like we're doing it for our purposes. Um right. but like a TV show of this probably would be better because you could explore a lot of uh these layers of like grief and guilt and uh certain things that like that I found most interesting about it that I wish like rather than these two separate narratives competing with each other we got one or the other like yeah. I would be interested Here's... in a movie that just has Dwight as the protagonist where you're dealing with the guilt of this and the process of that so that you don't yeah. have to go through these like very obvious bullet points of what that narrative is. And then right. I was also fascinated by where it's like you could have a whole episode on this if it was a limited series. Joaquin Phoenix's character in like falling down the mid-aughts version of the yes. internet Yes, um, I I was just about to say that was one of the on the list of things that I do think would have been interesting to flesh out if it was a television show is that idea of that the internet can be can provide both a support system for somebody who's going through grief like this, but it can also provide an easy way to uh, sort of funnel your grief into an obsession that isolates you and you know takes you out of your life and maybe puts you towards some bad decision making right right and i think that's actually really interesting and if you know a story wanted to focus on the angle of that in a way that was not necessarily lurid but sort of you know uh responsible interesting whatever um i think i there's also we've seen plenty of movies and some tv shows about 
uh, a couple who experience tragedy and it drives them apart. There's sort of that phenomenon of, you know, mm-hmm. parents who lose a child and then they end up divorced not long after. And you could explore that. I think this movie does this on a very surfacey level with some really sort of surfacey scenes between Joaquin Phoenix and Jennifer Connelly where they just end up yelling at each other. I actually think Joaquin's pretty bad in this movie. I think Connelly is better but she's also tasked with these like really these monologues that don't do her any favors i think the one really good the one good performance i think in this movie is ruffalo i think ruffalo fleshes out a character that i'm kind of interested in and sort of at least feel a little bit for but well in our entry what i think what speaks to his performance being the compelling one in this movie is like the entry point to this character is the hit and run. It's this abhorrent uh, yeah. thing that he somehow gets to spend the rest of the movie like fleshing out and humanizing and making compelling. Yeah. Um, also, let's hear it for the subgenre of uh, awards buzzed movies where Mark Ruffalo kills someone with a vehicle. <laughs> because we'll end up doing Margaret at some point. Yeah. But. I feel like this is a and Margaret Noted also by the way distracted driver Mark Ruffalo Margaret which was supposed to be released the year before Reservation Road came out yes. and uh, obviously wasn't for another several years but um, yeah I think Ruffalo is good in this one you also get to, you get those flashes before uh, the accident where you can already see he's you know. He's a complicated person. He's kind of a fuck-up. Clearly, he and his ex-wife have a lot of tensions. He's very nervous about bringing his son home because he knows that he's gonna, you know, he's overstepped his whatever visitation bounds by keeping the kid out. Obviously, um, him wearing a Red Sox cap and being a Red Sox fan is a uh, character defect that I find very interesting that we could explore where, obviously... um, Early aughts movies Red Sox fans are bad and should... Be, right. uh, go to jail by the end of their movies, I think is a fine message that Reservation Road sends, and I do co-sign that, so that's good. But other You just that, lost us a bunch of followers. How dare you? I will, I will I, counterbalance I, this. Any Red Sox uh, fans, listeners, I am, a, I am not a sports person, but I understand uh, your, uh, your whatever. I love you. Um, <laughs> wow, that was convincing. I'm sure that we have Red Sox fans amongst us. I'm going to be Lizzie Kaplan falling backwards into a sea of of teenagers uh, flashing the double bird as far as that. Uh, <laughs> suck on that. Um, yes. Joe anyway. is famously from the state of New York. No, and- I say that because I'm being a, a jerk, but whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> you love me for it. Anyway, I yes. I do, I do, and I don't think our listeners will begrudge you. I'm sure we've had more... Um, uh, uh, listeners that have begrudged uh, things that I've said about noted actresses who might be in the Oscar race this year. <laughs> Can't imagine who you're talking about. You have come. I, I love her. I've, you've I come close her. to revealing your uh, your animosity there for a while. Anyway, back to Reservation Road. Back to the good. Prefer- so yeah. So you agree with me that Ruffalo is like the one good performance? Yeah, I think. He, I mean, I think he's uh, definitely the most solid thing in this movie. Mark Ruffalo, okay, we've maybe talked about this with Mark Ruffalo before. This is our third Ruffalo? Hold on, let me bring it up. Zodiac in the cut. Oh no, it's our fourth, 54. Yep, 
Yes, the unexpected 54 of it all. Yeah. yeah. It's also yeah. our third Elle Fanning. Yep. Two of which are when she was a child, this and the door in the floor. What's the third Elle Fanning? What's the other hold one? Hold on. Uh, hold on. I've got it in a second. I've got my list. Uh, oh, somewhere, of course. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Where she's wonderful in somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, our third Al Fanning, our fourth Mark Ruffalo. Weirdly, I think it's our first Joaquin Phoenix and our first Jennifer Connelly, which is wild and crazy kids to me. Like, that's... I wonder how many Slatteries we've done, because John Slattery is in this movie. Oh, I think I wrote that down. Hold on. It's our second, because he was in our very first one. He was in Mona Lisa Smile, and now all the way till now. Yes, John Slattery. This and our movie... first Mira, I think it's our first Mira Sorvino as well. I wish she was in this movie more. I suspect you feel the same. She is she is a uh, uh, a great leveler in this movie. She feels like the only normal, like in a movie that is very um, uh, like bent on telling you these people are all caps normal people she's the only one that felt like a normal person she is their daughter's piano teacher and also the ex-wife of dwight because this is uh, a byproduct of the 90s where all of these uh melodramas everyone has to be connected right um yes yes yeah and uh her husband isn't played by rick springfield but he could have been like honestly well no because these like aughts melodramas you know when there is an ex-wife involved the wife has to marry someone who is hotter who could conceivably have played jesus in a tv (laughs) miniseries wait what else are you thinking of i don't know that's just a trope it just feels like the ex-wife always marries hot jesus See, I was thinking the ex-wife always marries somebody who is, like, comparatively beta, which, like, the money ball of it all is sort of where I went yeah. with that. But, um, because he's, like... hip. Someone hip. He's, and he's, but he's also, like, chill. He's also just, like, he's not going to be the one, like... Showing like, up puffing at the front up his door chest. with a baseball bat, like, you gotta right. go, man. He's like, right. hey, man, listen. He's not the toxic masculinity that uh, that you think, that exactly. you expect maybe uh, Ruffalo's character was. Um, but, like, yes, you're right. Everything is so absurdly interconnected where, like, Ruffalo ends up working for the law firm that Phoenix goes to and... The, fa- the the climax of this, where Joaquin Phoenix figures it all out because of the telltale Red Sox hat. And, like, finally, after spending much, much time with Ruffalo working on the case, and, like, they've interacted plenty of times. Lots and of conversations about SUV grill protectors. <laughs> right. There's a lot of that. Also, okay, to most 2007 aspects of this movie, one of which is SUV as signifier of vice, uh, another one of them is lots of talk about the Red Sox fucking breaking the curse, but also that basic one HTML little HTML websites, basic HTML websites, but also that scene towards the beginning where Joaquin Phoenix is the college professor and they're all debating about uh, the Iraq war and about uh, whatever, like military shit. And I'm just like, not another 2007 movie that's obsessed with uh, America's place in the world because of the Iraq war. Like really, truly we were as a nation just 
ill with that stuff. Like we were, there was a fever and it had not broken and it was figuring out what the fuck, how to, how to deal with the Iraq war. And even this movie that doesn't have anything to do with that decided it needed to throw in its own little lions for lambs scene at the beginning of this movie. And I was just like, God, not again, not more of this. Okay. So uh, this is the perfect timing for this. I'd mentioned to you before we started recording this movie in its terrible box office run also uh, opened the same weekend as another movie we've covered on the podcast that also world premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. Was it bump, 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 rendition? Rendition. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, Papa I could... rendition. Yes, exactly. There were a couple movies that I sort of thought of uh, during this, one of which was Mystic River, which we'll get into in a second when we talk about yeah. the grieving parents genre. It's a little bit like Mystic River with women. It's filmed and it very... has no more female characters than Mystic River does. Its visual style is very reminiscent, I think, of Mystic River uh, in a lot of ways. It, remi- it made me think, because of the Ruffalo thing and the two couples thing, it made me think of We Don't Live Here Anymore a little bit, which, compared to this movie, is the best movie in creation. <laughs> like, I wanted to be watching We Don't Live Here Anymore so much, and like, We Don't Live Here Anymore is a decidedly... Uh, I don't know if I would say mediocre, but, like, there are good things and there are not good things about I'd have to see it again. Anymore. I remember really loving Laura Dern in it at the time. I before loved it was cool to Laura, love Dern. Laura Dern. She's great in it. I, st- I stand by that. Um, anyway, we'll do We Don't Live Here Anymore at some point. We have to. Uh, Once my pledge to you, like before the year is out. of doing four Naomi Watts movies. Right, right. Once once we're past May and a year has passed since the Naomi Watts miniseries, we'll do We Don't Live Here Anymore. Anyway. Um, but yeah, uh, so rendition is what I thought of when, I, when there was that little Iraq war piece, I was just like, oh, right. We were another movie that opened on the same weekend as rendition. And this, <laughs> the aforementioned things we lost in the fire. Get the fuck out of here. What wow. a cursed weekend. Genuinely. What a cursed weekend. Uh, what was the number one at the box office that weekend? Hold please. All right. Should still have the page open. Oh my god, I watched this for the first time this year for Spooky Season. Uh, Based on a graphic novel, uh, can you guess this? Uh, Spooky Season, based on a graphic novel, so not Bug. No. Uh, um, And Bug wouldn't have been number one at the box office, and Bug was earlier in the year, that year. Um, Has a few, I think, at least one, direct-to-DVD sequels is it 30 days of night no it is 30 days of night no way wait oh right because i was already in new york in in october of 2011 i was like i remember watching 30 days of night uh in new york but yeah that does make sense um wow good for 30 days of night for finishing number one in the box office 30 days of night features a um, a scenery-chewing performance by Ben Foster that beats out even many other scenery-chewing performances by Ben Foster. It is absolutely stunning what you know he's what able to him. do in that movie. Um, wonderful. Okay, so let's let's get the Terry George-ness of this out of the way early. Because there really isn't actually a ton to say about Terry George, even though he was a huge reason why this movie had Oscar buzz, because Hotel Rwanda was such a seemingly organic Oscar success, which by which I mean 
it was one of those movies that like people saw and really liked. You know what I mean? In in this sort of limited release, it was. Uh, it was I a Toronto like the, movie. I think. It was a Toronto movie. I feel like the word of mouth on that was really good. I think Hollywood types really, really loved it. And it, it was sort a late of, release, too. So, like, it was a slower build. I don't think it did as well in the early precursor season. But, like, it, right. it just kept building momentum and momentum. To was the that point also where if, a if that was a 10 Best Picture nominee year, it probably would have been a Best Picture nominee. It was a Lionsgate movie. Yes, I think you're right. If that was a... Yes. In fact, I think it might have been, like, 6th or 7th that year. I agree. But yeah, uh, Sofio Canedo got the very surprising Supporting Actress nomination because it really was uh, coming on at the end. And so I think because of that arc, people sort of expected that Terry George was on the ascent from that. Mm -hmm. Terry George, uh, best known for... he uh, Before Hotel Rwanda, he had written or maybe co-written... Um, the screenplay for In the Name of the Father. He, uh, Yes, him and Jim Sheridan co-wrote the screenplay for In the Name of the Father, which was a uh, many-time Oscar nominee for Daniel Day-Lewis, Pete Postlethwaite, Emma Thompson. It was a Best Picture nominee and uh, Best Director. So, like, it was a big, big Oscar success, that one. And then Hotel Rwanda, um, a decade later. Uh, and those are sort of the two big... Um, Things he's uh, from Northern Ireland. He was born and raised in Belfast. He had actually like a lot of associations to the IRA, which makes sense with uh, with um, the in the name of the father of it all. But um, you wouldn't think that necessarily when watching something like Hotel Rwanda. But an interesting sort of thing about his life. And then like after. Uh, Reservation Road, which is his follow-up film, three years after Hotel Rwanda, it's a lot of nothing. He does a movie called Whole Lot of Soul that I've never heard of, starring Brendan Fraser and uh, Colm Meany, our friend Colm Meany from uh, The Fighting Irish Guy from uh, I was going to say, is that a movie about um, my timeline right now? A Whole Lot of Soul. People talking about the movie Soul. But also in this movie is our beloved Yaya DaCosta. uh, (gasps) Put put respeto on her name. And (sighs) um, so, yeah, have never heard of this movie, Whole Lot of Soul. Who, who, what studio released this one? Like, super, super indie, distributed by uh, Lightning Entertainment Group in uh, 2012. It played the Tribeca Film Festival. Oh. So, yeah. So, absolutely, like, invisible movie, which is too bad because we love Yaya. And then uh, in 2016... There was the, I'm pretty sure this movie was delayed a bunch, The Promise with uh, Oscar Isaac and yeah. Christian Bale and, uh, and such. Wasn't that, and that like one, Open Road or someone? It was Open Road. God, you're good at that. Yes, yeah. Open Road. It premiered at TIFF in 2016. Nobody saw it there. And then it didn't open in the States until the following April. Um, Nobody it saw it there probably because it was like the second Thursday gala or something. It, yes, it was. I think it was. Uh, it opened well into. Well, it says it opened September eleventh, twenty sixteen. So that's usually midpoint. Okay. Around TIFF, generally, if I if my dates are uh, consistent, it's a ninety million dollar budget on this movie. Which, wow, <laughs> wow, that Terry George at this point in his career commanded a ninety million dollar budget for what is this? 
I don't even know what this movie is about. It seems like it's very it's sort of Isaac. historical sweep. Um, but like, what's the is there a on, romance? I'm sure because it's Charlotte Laban who we have talked about when we did our episode on Z Walk. Um, yes. Is she's the romantic lead? The pic, the poster looks very much like the Four Feathers, but maybe that's just okay. So the yeah, logline on I can, I can IMDb, picture the poster, but I don't think I ever saw a trailer for it. I definitely didn't see the movie. Right. Um, Set during the last days of the Ottoman Empire, The Promise follows a love triangle between um, Michael, who is played by Oscar Isaac, uh, a brilliant medical student, the beautiful and sophisticated Anna, who I'm assuming is Charlotte Laban, and Chris, which is Christian Bale, a renowned American journalist <laughs> based Bale. in Paris. I forgot it had Christian Bale in it. Yes. Christian Bale with, like, on the poster, um, a Chester A. Arthur-esque... Uh, a mustache that sort of goes i know chester a arthur also had the mutton chop so maybe i'm confusing my american president portraits but he like left that... like appalachia of out of the furnace and went to the ottoman empire to shoot the promise like the very bushy walrusy um beard or mustache that like moves down into the goatee thing anyway yes nobody saw the promise and that was sort of that was the last major film that terry george has done and i love that me of all people the first thing that i remember about that movie is its distributor and nothing else and nothing else yeah um yeah so uh he also did uh some directing work on the cursed hbo show luck that killed a bunch of horses and then was uh, canceled uh, early so there was also that. So yeah, so not a whole really ton to talk about with Terry George. I think he was, as I said, a big reason why this movie had a lot of buzz. People fi- figured the Hotel Rwanda trajectory would keep going, and it very much didn't. And then I think that was sort of, you know, we kind of filed him away as kind of a one-hit wonder of a director. And I think ultimately, looking back on Reservation Road... And it's Oscar buzz. It's more interesting to talk about the cast, but I think also the themes and the plot, because I think that was a big reason why Mm -hmm. people looked at this movie is the, I wrote down in my notes, a history of grieving parents and Oscar, but like, it's kind of true. We're like, you really, it's, it's a, we talk about character types that the Oscars really like. They like, you know, great men in history. They like uh, supportive wives of great men in history. Um, they do every once in a while love a charismatic villain. Mm-hmm. And they also really tend to respond to uh, parents who have lost a child and who spend a good part of the movie grieving. I sort of Domestic jo- drama. Right. But like this, like, there's like, Kramer versus Kramer domestic drama, which is like, that is a thing too. But like, they really love this kind of actors portraying deep and unimaginable grief, right? And so I sort of wrote down this stuff and it comes in different forms. There's Ordinary People, which obviously does very well, which is like a family reacting to tragedy and in this very sort of like brittle way. But like 21 Grams was not long before... uh, Reservation Road, which I feel like is a little bit of an antecedent of just like, look how much Naomi Watts got on just playing 
pedal to the metal grief in that way um monsters ball where Halle berry's character experiences a terrible loss of her child uh partway through that movie and that helped propel her towards oscar uh this same year as reservation road tommy lee jones gets a nomination for in the valley of ayla where he's playing a grieving father of uh of a soldier son in the bedroom plays on this there's a little bit of in america where like they're dealing with uh, they don't really talk about it much until the end of the movie, but the the loss of their child, obviously Nicole Kidman in Rabbit Hole, is that's very much uh, the point of that movie. Casey Affleck would go on to win an Oscar for Manchester by the Sea, which is you know New England grieving parent, which this movie also is because this movie is set in Connecticut. Um, and I mentioned Mystic River, which you know wins Sean Penn an Oscar too. So it's definitely. When the logline of this movie comes out, combined with Terry George, combined with the cast, you can see why people were just like, oh, Oscar voters are going to really respond to that. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same... Well, okay. it's I guess it's a two-pronged thing as to why it failed so resolutely and so quickly. It's like you have the prominence of a film festival premiere, a huge premiere as a world premiere gala tiff critics immediately hate the movie but focus features that was distributing it had a bunch of other priorities that year yes whereas if this got better reviews they maybe would have focused this more yeah yeah we mentioned atonement (laughs) we mentioned atonement but like there was even their smaller stuff that year ended up becoming priorities in different ways right eastern promises ends up getting a best actor nomination for Viggo mortensen and was showing up in precursor awards uh lust caution was definitely getting promoted and ended up winning precursor awards for other certain things and ended up it had a whole publicity cycle because of its nc-17 rating right ended up on a lot of top 10 lists critics really loved it um the the Ang Lee coming off of Brokeback Mountain-ness of it was obviously mm-hmm. a big angle with that one. But then even stuff like Talk to Me, which ends up not really getting much of anything in that season, Casey Lemons has talked to me. But like Cheadle's performance in that was absolutely buzzed about and Definitely uh, got more ink yes. um, than Reservation Row did at the end of the day. <laughs> and even as a failure. Evening, which was another Focus Features movie, is a more interesting failure than Reservation Road was. So, like, even as a bomb that, like, ended up squandering all its buzz, Reservation Road, like, had to take second place at its own studio for that year, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, like, its ultimate box office performance, which, like, the Focus didn't really even try. They never put it in more than 40 theaters. Right. It was, like... People that showed up and paid to see this as a regular paying audience, probably barely more people did that than saw mm-hmm. it at that Toronto festival. Right. So that that Toronto festival kicked off on September 6th. This didn't premiere until September 13th. So this is absolutely the late in the festival thing that you were mentioning uh, a little bit ago. Like that it's not always a kiss of death. Sometimes you know, goes the other way. Obviously, Green Book is a big example of something that premieres late in the festival and ends up doing really well in award season. So, like, it's not always a one-to-one correlation. But premiering that late at TIFF, like, already, even, you get the feeling that, like, even the festival programmers were just like, eh, 
maybe not our night one gala, maybe not our opening mm-hmm. weekend of the festival. And you can see why. Like, you watch this movie and you're just like, I think I see the great movie that you were maybe trying to make, but it all falls very um, flat or predictable or... And I do think Joaquin Phoenix isn't good in it and i think you need him to be really good in it he's definitely miscast i think and like this is this is a weird point in joaquin phoenix's career it's like almost a transition point you want to question if it is like the straw that breaks the camel's back where he's going from walk the line where hollywood is trying to make him a leading man but it's a little bit of a square peg and a round hole that's absolutely true. And also, like, do you re- obviously you remember him. He won the Globe that year and he was Oscar nominated. But did it seem to you during that whole thing that he was either A, a little embarrassed during that whole thing, or B, like, didn't, wasn't really into that project to the degree that, like, obviously Reese was? And, like, Reese winning the Oscar for it was, you know. I think he's not into the dog and pony show. And, like, in a way that in the past year when he won for Joker, it, you know, it feels like it was a little bit more on his terms. Um, yeah. The whole like awards run of something. And it felt like people were more reverential to his body of work and people understood him and who he was more yes. so than he, it was at the time of walk the line where walk the line. It's like, really, you can see the Hollywood apparatus trying to push him yes. in a certain direction. Yes. And I think the bio, whether or not thing. it's the direction he wanted to go. I don't think he's a performer or a personality that wants to be pushed in any direction, but right. yes, his whole, his whole awards run for that movie was, um, you know, it was like awkward and un- uncomfortable for him you could tell that he wasn't uh, happy with it to the point where it's like he could have been a competitor to win if he had been more willing to play the game and i i guess good for him for not right um i guess yeah i mean i've always found him his posturing to that regard a little bit annoying but whatever but that year it was clearly like this is a guy who doesn't want to do this and is you know right being but, by studio yeah whatever. But it, yeah, so I think you 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 make a very good point about where he is at this point in his career, where Reservation Road comes right in between, actually, two James Gray movies that he does that he gets really good reviews for, which are We Own the Night, which was earlier in 2007, and then Two Lovers in 2008, uh, both of which were really good reviews, but don't really break through into the culture the way you know you would maybe hope that they would. But clearly, he fits well with James Gray and um, obviously he makes, you know, other movies with him, the immigrant uh, several years later. But so like that feels like he's in a pocket that he's really comfortable with, which you maybe don't always see his, his career before this. I remember when we were on little gold men and we were talking about gladiator, which was his first Oscar nomination. Um, I was surprised to remember that like, Oh, right. This is, the kind of actor, the kind of performance that Joaquin Phoenix would give back then that he doesn't really give now. And in that one, it felt it wasn't it was broody, I guess, but like there was a there was a panache to it that I was just like, oh, like I don't you don't really see this Joaquin Phoenix anymore. But also like 
This is when he's done. He's does signs and the village for M Night Shyamalan, which so good in signs. <laughs> I think he is too, but like I don't think that's the Joaquin Phoenix we get really anymore either, right? Where it's like it just feels like it's a slightly different performer. Um, and even like he's making movies like Ladder Forty Nine. Like, can you imagine him making a Ladder Forty Nine now? Like, it feels totally, absolutely outside of the realm of what he does. And Ladder 49 is not a real movie. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, he's also, by the way, I totally forgot, he has a supporting role in uh, Hotel Rwanda. That uh, Yes, he does. So this uh, is also like a, a reuniting. Yeah, he, do, he tends to sort of double up and triple up sometimes with his directors, which I think probably speaks well of him. But so after Two Lovers in 2008, that's then the great sort of schism in his career where he takes off between Two Lovers and then later The Master in 2012. That's four years where he doesn't make an actual movie. The only movie he makes is I'm Still Here, which is, I think, very – to me, it's the, the fracture point of his career kind of where mm-hmm. he – from there on out, and we can talk about I'm Still Here, even though I've never seen it, so I don't want to really talk yeah, about I it as a thing. things to do with my time than watch there, that movie. There's the whole swirl of, you know, obviously bad behavior on the set from Casey Affleck, and that's where the whole, you know, Casey Affleck issues stem from. And again, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't want to speak on it without knowing. Um, but it also has never felt like a thing, like, what do I, I don't want to, I don't want to watch Joaquin Phoenix, you know, traveling up his own ass about his is what it is right right and it's it's always seemed obnoxious to me and yada yada whatever but like for the purposes of this discussion i think it's interesting because obviously at that point he seems to really uh make the decision of what kind of career he wants on his terms and sort of (laughs) seems to be really aggressive about uh sticking to it and like his movies all really coalesce from that point into being like Joaquin Phoenix movies where it's the master, the immigrant, even her to an extent, which her it's Spike Jones, it's brighter. It's there's comedy to it and whatever, but like his character is so much like you can never quite feel comfortable with him because it's Joaquin Phoenix doing his Joaquin Phoenix thing still. So I think that still really fits with what else he's doing, but then I mean, I kind of disagree that the master and her are, like, overridden. It sounds like you're saying, like, it's so definitionally Joaquin Phoenix for you. And, like, I think those are movies that are so, like, more defined by their auteur. And, like, Joaquin Phoenix is able to do what he does within their world. No, I think, no, yes, I I don't think I'm saying otherwise. But what I'm saying is his performances feel like they're all they're all telling versions of the Joaquin Phoenix performance story, right? Sure. Where I just feel like his career choices from this point out from this point out uh adhere to each other better than they did in the before I'm Oh still here yeah, times. yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I, I mean? mean? You talk about like the uh performer as a tour yeah. thing like uh Isabel Luper has been mentioned for i don't think joaquin does it joaquin phoenix does it as well as some of the other sure. performers or like nicole kidman um right and i like some of his performances better than others others in this but i think you can see a through line from the master the immigrant her inherent vice 
you were never really here, which I think is like more and more feels like it's the definitional Joaquin Phoenix performance for me, just because I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like the movie. I don't like, uh, I, I would not choose to watch it if it were my choice. And that feels like very much a lot of the Joaquin Phoenix thing for me. And yet a lot of other people seem to like it, which is also the Joaquin Phoenix thing for me. Well, I mean, I think that's why he steamrolled for Joker is that they were also rewarding this body of work that like mainstream awards voting groups are never going to support like you were never really here. They're just not going to get behind something like that in a wide, a huge uh, voting body is not going to throw their consensus behind something like that. And Um, yet I look at his next movie whenever we get it, which, you know, hopefully at some point, maybe in 2021, uh, is his the new Mike Mills movie? Mike Mills of 20th Century Women fame. Really excited beginners. to see what Joaquin Phoenix is like in a Mike Mills movie. It feels to me like it's going to be like one will one will prevail, and whoever prevails <laughs> will determine whether I like the movie or not. Because I do like it's not like I love all the Mike Mills movies. I actually thought Thumbsucker was pretty cute, but I did not like Beginners as much as everybody else liked it, which made me feel sort of alienated from it. But then I loved 20th Century Women so much yeah. that now I feel like, well, now I'm a Mike Mills Joe fan. and I would absolutely lay on the train tracks for 20th Century Women. One million percent true. I would uh, release a jar of fireflies and f- and run to my death for uh, for 20th Century Women. But so now I'm like, now I'm curious, whereas... And I don't think Joaquin Phoenix is the kind of actor to allow winning the Oscar to um, sort of move him into a new phase of his career. Yet, um, I'm curious as to whether Come On, Come On has him doing something maybe a little bit differently than he does, than he's done in The Master and uh, Inherent if Vice. If it's closer, I assume that it'll be closer to the mode of her, which is... Right, maybe my favorite performance of his. Um, so I'll be excited for that if that is the case. I am excited. It's called Come On, Come On, and uh, Come On, Come On, new movies in 2021 that hopefully still get released in theaters. Because exactly, uh, and it's age well, it's age 24. So. They said they're absolutely not doing right any type of VOD type of thing. It even felt like First Cow was somewhat of a compromise because it was in theaters right before. COVID hit. So yeah. to maybe put a button on the Joaquin Phoenix talk, not to relitigate Joker in any way, which is a movie <laughs> I hate and a performance that I hate. Yeah. I don't know. I like, I feel, I feel at least glad for Joaquin Phoenix that he can, um, not have some type of Oscar specter over him, which like to the point of what I was saying with, uh, the whole walk the line, uh, you know, awards platform for him. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like he he is. Uh, I don't want to say like liberated, but he doesn't have to deal with that anymore. I think he'll probably be even if Come On, Come On is like an awardsy movie. Like he's not probably going to play the dog and pony show anymore. It doesn't feel like it's the specter looming over his head of like this yeah. could be a performer who gets an Oscar one day. Yeah. Um. I also sorry uh, to. Con- just put the close the loop on his other upcoming projects. Oh yeah. Uh, at least according to Wikipedia, he is listed as uh in the new Ari Aster movie. Oh, Bo right. Was Afraid. The and so called four and a half hour um 
dark comedy, which feels more in line with like the walking phoenix thing but again it also Ari feels Aster, redundant for Ari Aster movies because he already does make four and a half hour dark comedies <laughs> i have loved his movies so much that like it does feel a little bit like 2021 2022 are the years where walking phoenix is coming for these filmmakers that i love and i hope that they survive it um and then he's also making a ridley scott movie where he's oh, playing napoleon so that's not gonna happen. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Anyway. Um, but the other performer in this movie I wanted to talk about, and with respect to Ruffalo, who I think is very good, and Mira Servino, who um I love and invented post-its, and we love her for that. Um, I want to talk about Jennifer Connolly in this movie because her career, when it comes to with within the context of Oscar, is really interesting slash disappointing slash, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, where um, obviously at this point in 2007 with Reservation Road, she had won the Oscar several years before for A Beautiful Mind for Supporting Actress. Um, a performance I think is good in a movie I hate. It's not a great performance. It's not one I would have given an Oscar to, but I don't think she She's is. She's the most grounding thing in that movie. Yeah, and I think that was a big part of the reason. Even among people who liked that movie, they responded to that grounding really, really well. And she is the the one you really latch on to in that movie, and I think it really helped her end up winning the Oscar. But that award was a culmination, I think, of a few years of doing really, really interesting work. Because, of course, her whole thing was she was, you know— introduced in Once Upon a Time in America, and then obviously Labyrinth was such a sort of big, crowd-pleasing kind of a thing for her. And she was sort of up and coming for a while. I remember there was a while where she was like the hot young girl in a way that like, remember when we like sexualized Alicia Silverstone around the the crush era and Drew Barrymore during her Poison Ivy era? It felt like Jennifer Connelly also had an era of that that I always found a little... um, uncomfortable to watch sort of play out watching sort of there was a it seemed like there was a lot of men leering at her for a little bit and um but then she started making just this succession of really weird slash fascinating auteur stuff where like she's in dark city it's the you know it's the movies mm-hmm. where they end with jennifer Connolly at the end of a pier you know that little trope <laughs> where it's just like dark city and requiem for a dream both ending the exact same way she's also in that film she dies in the car crash at the end of pollock with pollock I yes yes oh like super super harrowing to watch actually watching that scene play out where it's just like they're Anyway, he just murdered them and died in the process. And uh, anyway, anyway, um, she's in that movie with Billy Crudup called Waking the Dead that I would always confuse with Bringing Out the Dead, which are they're definitely two different movies. What was the um, other Billy Crudup movie? Jesus's Son. She's not in Jesus's Son, but she's in. But he uh, is, and I confuse those two movies. Oh, that's interesting. But she's also in uh, Inventing the Abbots with Billy Crudup. And she's also in uh, a movie in 1996, uh, Lee Tamahori's uh, Mulholland Falls, which for a while would get – I would see Mulholland Falls on a thing and my brain would say Mulholland Drive and I would perk up to it and just be like, oh, no, it's just Mulholland Falls. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so then she wins the Oscar for A Beautiful Mind and does the classic follow-up um, 
populist movie that nobody likes, which I feel like was a thing for actresses winning the Oscar for a while there. I think of like, mm-hmm. that's the Eon Flux thing for, um, for Charlize. But uh, she's in Hulk, Ang Lee's Hulk. Nobody likes it. And except for obviously now it's, it has this sort of like resurgence in terms of, uh, you know, people who... Ironic appreciation. I don't even think it's for that one. I don't even think it's ironic appreciation. I think it's one of those just like, uh, we didn't... Uh, we didn't recognize this. It's one of those superhero movies that is different than other superhero movies. So, uh, so nowadays right. it's not seem... an algorithm movie. So people really respect Ang Lee for trying it. Right. Um, but that same year she's in house of sand and fog, which is a huge Oscar buzz movie for, for her. People think like that's going to be her next, her sort of, uh, follow-up nomination she's on the cover of that ew oscars issue with nicole kidman and naomi watts that was almost entirely cursed because it was almost over three mm-hmm. <laughs> the three of them like naomi watts did get that oscar nomination and saved that cover from actual uh, cursed uh status but everything else in house of sand and fog seems to do well kingsley gets the nomination shori agadashlu gets the nomination but she doesn't that's so, a movie that's really ripe for revisiting too in our current age i've It'll seen a couple people even more miserable than it ever was but like she's great in it the nominated performances are great in it that scene where she steps on the nail i still think about uh daily where it's just like it's not daily but like often where it's makes me full body react um i think it was richard lawson past guest richard lawson who watched that recently and was uh tweeting about it and saying how good it was and it made me want to go back and watch it again um but that's sort of that fate of house of sand and fog where it's like other people did well with it but she didn't kind Mm. of was a theme for her for a little bit where 2006 she's in little children Kate Winslet gets the nomination. She doesn't like. She's absolutely underserved by that movie. Where even like Philip Somerville got more Oscar talk than yes, uh, yes. Which like I don't understand why Jennifer Connelly would play that role. That's barely in the movie and doesn't really do anything. Right, and then uh, that same year she's in Blood Diamond, which once again the pattern holds. Two co-stars get nominated, none of which, none of whom are her. Uh, Leo and uh, Jaiman Hansu get nominated for Blood Diamond, and she doesn't. And so that's sort of, that's the vibe of Jennifer Connelly going into Reservation Road. And Reservation Road obviously doesn't get two Oscar nominations for its co-stars, but if it did, they wouldn't it be, wouldn't her. be for her. And yeah. it's like, it's just, it's the same kind of thing, where it's just like she takes this role in a movie, and the role is completely... Uh, unremarkable and just doesn't serve her well and it's i mean and again i am very reluctant to more and more as the years go on reluctant to blame actresses for taking uh nothing roles because i know that the roles are hard to come by like really Mm -hmm. good roles for actresses and like i you know you take what you can get to keep your career going but she was also being a parent during this time too Right, but it's just really unfortunate that I think she's a really an incredibly interesting and talented actress, and people don't think just... of her in creative terms in terms of casting. And I think she could really do something outside of the box. This very narrow box of like aggrieved wives that she's been placed in. Truly, one of the biggest offenses is that there's a movie called The Wife, and she is not that wife. <laughs> not that wife um yes 
But like, and I think her role in American Pastoral is very similar to that too. Where just like she mm-hmm. is the wife, and other people are more interesting. But after Even Reserva- in Noah, she's the wife. Yep, yep. But like, um, after Reservation Road, and she does make she makes the Day of the Earth stood still. Where you know, that's an odd movie that like I don't think is a bad movie, and uh, but nobody really talks about that anymore. But then she gets into this like real wasteland in her career where. She's for some reason in. He's just not that into you. Like she's the most of the puzz- the puzzling people who are in that movie. Like why is Scarlett Johansson in this movie? Why is Bradley Cooper in this movie? Why is Jennifer Connelly in that movie? Takes the cake. It's just like it just makes no sense that she's in that movie. Um, she's a voice in the animated movie Nine. That is not the musical movie Nine, but the other movie that came out in two thousand nine. Like it's so. I hate it. I hate that confusion. Nine, um, nine, and in two thousand nine, yes. She and then like she and the Paul... Dustin Lance Black movie, the Sorry. disaster that uh, you know took a few years to come out, ended up being called Virginia. What was the original title? It's like what's wrong with Virginia or what's happening with Virginia. Hold on, what it was what's wrong. Virginia? Yeah, it was originally what's wrong with Virginia. It might have even played a festival or two under that title, but ended up just being called Virginia. I've never seen it. She's in a bunch of movies with Paul Bettany that, like, none of which go anywhere. She's They finally made that Darwin movie called Creation, where she's, again, the wife <laughs> of Darwin and doesn't go anywhere. She's the uninteresting character in The Dilemma, Ron Howard's The Dilemma, which I always sort of stick up for because it was the first movie where I found out that Channing Tatum is funny in addition to being hot, which, like, what a discovery that was. Um but, like, it's movies that you've never heard of. Something called Salvation Boulevard, where she's in it with Pierce Brosnan and Greg Kinnear. And she's in... Uh, she's in that movie Winter's Tale, which is supposed to be bananas, and I do want to catch up to that. But Winter's Tale is a absolute bonkers, bananas, like, go see it in the theater because it's that bad kind of a movie. And she's absolutely the part that you forget that she's even in it. Like... <laughs> It's, you even forget she's in the MCU. <laughs> she's one of the most, uh, like... Uh, well, she's just a voice in the MCU, but yes, yes, you're still right. Still counts. Still counts. She's the voice of um I uh, think Spider-Man's. I was, like, the first person, at least, that I saw on the timeline that I was like, that was Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> yes. Um, She's in Alita Battle Angel, apparently. I don't want to... Again, you warned me about saying anything about Alita Battle Angel, so I won't. Stance will come for you. She's in another Paul Bettany movie called Shelter in 2014 um, that I've never heard of, so I feel like I have heard of that. She's in a movie called Only the Brave in 2017 that I don't remember being a thing, but... uh, It's interesting that she's never played, like, Liam Neeson's wife in a bad action movie that's indistinguishable from all the other Liam Neeson action Take movies. Take one of the Famke Janssen roles away from Famke right. Janssen. Right. Yeah. Like, she's, so she's, interestingly, this year she was supposed to have been in probably easily her biggest role in a decade or more. She's, she's going to be the love interest for Tom Cruise's character in Top Gun, the new uh, Top Gun Maverick that I'm not super interested in, but a lot of people yeah, are because it's... But like, and again, she's the villain on the Snowpiercer show because what yes. I want to see her do is I want to see her yes. be the villain of Top Gun. But everybody thought Snowpiercer was terrible, <laughs> so well. the, the, the Snowpiercer show at least. Um, so like, yes, but like that is an indication that maybe you know she's ramping up into being more visible roles and things. And obviously, the the love interest for Tom Cruise 
is never a good role for the actresses who play the love interest of Tom Cruise no. and things. Like, but um, it's easily her biggest project, and like she's third lead in that movie, and like it's not like Top Gun the original did some good things for Kelly McGillis's career. Like it probably got her a bunch of roles that you know she hadn't gotten before. So like. I you could see a best case scenario for Jennifer Connelly where Top Gun does good things for her career, maybe. You know she's at least gonna get paid well for that movie. At least that, and good for her. Um, she's not. She's never been one of my like. Who are your favorite actresses? I would never, you know, think of Jennifer Connelly in that way. But I've always wanted ever, you know, ever since this sort of lull hit in her career, I've always wanted better for her career because mm-hmm. I think she's a really interesting presence. She's, um. She, it's just a vibe that you don't get from a whole lot of other actresses where it's this, my, it's not quite minor key, but just like it's quiet devastation sometimes where it's just, which I think is so weird that Reservation Road asks her to give this big sort of scream scene or whatever, where it's just like, that's not what I come to a Jennifer Connelly thing for. I come for her being sort of like a little bit darker than you expect someone in whatever role she's taking to be and i don't know i don't know she's incredibly charismatic and i want that back for her this is not the movie that did it (laughs) this is not the movie that did it this is not that movie i mean like you mentioned that darkness that's kind of why i want to see her play like a scheming bureaucratic villain yeah, well, yeah, and I think maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, seek out the Snowpiercer TV show. Maybe it's better than than what I had heard, uh, but I don't know. You wanted to talk about the Hollywood Film Awards. The one uh, award that, uh, of, like, major note that it got, and it, Jennifer Connelly got it for Supporting Actress. The Hollywood Film Awards, which we've, like, hinted at before, or maybe we've talked about it long ways ago. They're not really a thing anymore, and they used to be more of a punchline, like, along the lines of the Golden Satellites, where mm-hmm. it it was even more so than, like, the Golden Satellites who voted for Wolf of Wall Street without even having seen it. The Hollywood Film Awards used to take place in the summer, like, truly before some of these movies would be completed or seen by anyone. Um, so it's like, it truly was a, like, congratulations to your publicist right. um, type of prize. I wrote down some of the... Uh, this had Oscar buzz movies. I think the prototypical uh, Hollywood Film Award win is Hilary Swank for Amelia. <laughs> gave her Best Actress. This was when these were still happening in the summer, so no one had seen Amelia. Right. And it's also just like kind of indicative towards this is what this distributor is going to be pushing for Oscar sometimes. Well, it's interesting because I'm looking at the lineup from this 2007 and like a- actor Gear wins best actor for the hoax. For the hoax. Like what in the world? <laughs> Travolta wins supporting actor for hairspray. And yet, and yet like their actress of the year is Marion Cotillard for Vienne Rose. So like, that one did, you know, pan out. So it's not all this, like, they're not all the most ba- bananas things you've ever heard of, but, like, enough of them do, are. like, some things that are just, like, more indicative of where 
we thought the race was going to go from when they were in the summer. Now they're not in the summer. They're in the fall. But it is still an award show, basically, for people's publicists, not director of Director of the year that year was Mark Forster for The Kite Runner. Like, it's that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where... Yeah. Oh, it's so The previous weird. year, they gave Best Director to Oliver Stone for World Trade Center. Right. Yeah. Uh, 05 so is particularly cursed. Director was Sam Mendes for Jarhead. Supporting actor Matthew Broderick for The Producers. Uh, supporting actress Susan Sarandon. Tap dancing at a funeral in Elizabethtown. Yeah. Okay, this is also the last two things that are listed on the IMDb tab for this uh, 2007 Hollywood Film Awards. Uh, kind of tell the whole story where Hollywood World Award went to four months, three weeks, and two days, because that was obviously like the acclaimed uh, foreign language film, uh, especially in the early part of that year. And then the very next one, Hollywood Movie of the Year, is 300. <laughs> so, who the fuck knows? And it's, yeah, it, they, they're, like, basically nobody even knows that they still happen, but apparently they do. Yeah. They are uh, largely embarrassing. Yeah. So but, that like, would... for this movie to be a prototypical early, this had Oscar buzz, like, that's what I think of of this era. I think of, like, the first awards coming out being the Hollywood Film Awards. Yes. This was also, also prototypical for other reasons, too. I mean, the the TIFF premiere, I remember this one in the EW Fall movie preview had, like... Yeah. You know how, like, it was divided into months, and, like, the first... Oh, was it the first the, one of its month? I don't wow. know if it was the first October or if it was the second. You know what super sucks is I have the 2007 Fall preview issue for this at home back in New York, and I can't access it because I've been estranged from my home. So, yes. Uh, the other thing I noticed on the awards tab for Reservation Road is it got a it was a nominee for the Alliance of Women Film Journalists Award for movie you wanted to love but just couldn't, which is such a uh, fraught way of uh, talking that. And so, okay, I'm gonna list list you the nominees and the winner for this category at the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Um, Reservation Road is one of them. Movie you wanted to love but just couldn't. Evening is one of them. So really, Focus Features was uh, dominant in this category for the Alliance of Women Film Journalists. Georgia Rule, the uh, fraught production that was Georgia Rule, that was more of a story for you know tabloid shit with Lindsay Lohan than anything else. The winner is going to make you mad, though, Chris. Uh, it's Margot at the Wedding. Love Margot at the Wedding. As do I. But it was, but the Maybe line one because uh, Jennifer Jason Lee shits herself in the movie. Well, it's one of those things where, like, the line on Margot at the wedding, especially when it came out, was, "Oh, it's so like it's unlikable. Even if it's good, it's like it's, it's so hard to like it. It's so mean spirited. It's so whatever. Like, if you go in, you know, ex- you know, looking for a great Nicole Kidman performance, and you are rewarded with just like." just bad feelings being thrown your way. And it's, you know, and it's classic Noah Baumbach in that way, where it's like Noah Baumbach is really capable of just being very it's unpleasant. kind of the Noah Baumbach I want back. See, my Noah Baumbach is, uh, is Greta Gerwig Noah Baumbach. Like, it's Francis Ha and Mistress America Noah Baumbach, which always, you know, tempered his bile with, uh, you know, something else. 
Yeah, but then you have, like, Marriage Story, which is, like, bile-free. Oh, I don't think so. Mm. That move, that scene that everybody quotes without context on Twitter and annoys the shit out of me, where he's just like, I wish you were dead. Like, there's there's bile in, in Marriage Story. I mm. like Marriage Story a lot. I like Marriage Story, too. It sounds like you don't. Whenever we talk about it, it sounds like you don't. The thing about Marriage Story that, like, really gets me usually gets me when I watch it, but it doesn't always stay with me. And there's a lot of it, I think, that really works aggressively hard to sand down any thorny edge to that movie. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. All right. Um, Thank before... you, Adam Sandler and Uncut Gems. You disagree. I get it. I'm going through uh, my notes at this point. Iraq War. This would be a better TV show. Mystic River. Um, oh, <laughs> the sun. The, the scene where the son gets suspended from school because he got into a fight with a boy and he's telling Ruffalo about it. And the whole crux of that story ends up being he got into a fight because the other the other kid wouldn't own up to the bad thing that he did so it like absolutely ties into the mark ruffalo's inner turmoil and struggle i like got actively angry at the the patness of that i was just like i can't believe that he's relating to the son's schoolyard bully story like god damn it i was so yeah. mad i thought it was so stupid um uh joaquin jennifer Connolly's big fight which i didn't think was very uh convincing oh okay yeah, so she's basically asked to have a panic attack at the realization that her letting him out of the car to go collect or disperse fireflies is the thing that you know put him in the place to get hit by a car that that was not great i i mean you could I feel like She's there's something well. there you could make you could make something of that. Her guilt yeah. over a a seemingly inconsequential decision that ultimately, you know, butterfly affected its way, firefly affected its way into a tragedy. But um yeah, it's not a well-directed scene, it's not a well-scripted scene. So, I want to my last note here, I need to sh- give a shout out to Linda Dano because um Linda Dano's in this movie for, like, literally half a scene. I don't think she has any lines. She plays Jennifer Connelly's mother, and she sort of, like, ushers her out of a room when she's having a breakdown uh, early on in the movie. And literally, if you blinked, then you you would miss her. Uh, But Linda Dano is one of my favorite... We talk about soap opera people. Like, she's one of my very, very favorite soap opera actresses of all time. She obviously was on uh, My Beloved Another World, where she played romance novelist uh, Felicia Gallant, which was, like... I love that there's a genre of television where, like, a just a major character is just a romance novelist who has, like, butch lesbian haircut, like, power lesbian haircut, but is also, like straight lady extraordinaire just like it's the wildness of soaps never fails to uh delight me um I need more time in your day so that you can have a soaps podcast it literally so almost listen. happened it almost happened at one point um who knows if it'll uh, ever happen again um but she was also the co-host of a talk show in the 80s called Attitudes. Do you remember Attitudes at all? I do not, but I would absolutely watch it just by uh, the title alone. Attitudes was 
like it was her and uh, uh, this other co-host at one point it was Nancy Glass and then she was replaced by another sort of like perky blonde but it was like it was as if Hoda and Kathy Lee were but you replaced the wine with um uh not quite uppers exactly but just like they were just like they would stroll off the topic at whim and just like go to wherever there was uh, almost as iconic as Attitudes. Oh, it was, a, it was also on Lifetime. That was the other thing. It was the daytime talk show on Lifetime. So it was just like the very much like the television for women ethos of like 80s Lifetime was them. <laughs> and almost as famous as the show itself was the SNL sketch about it where Nora Dunn played Linda Dano and Jan Hooks played um, whoever the blonde uh, co-host was at that time. And... Nora Dunn plays Linda Dan with this very sort of like tented fingers and just sort of just like uh very like serious of just like yeah yeah that's, that's okay now um John John 316 for those of us who don't know football which are a lot of us who, who is that who is John 316 yeah is he a quarterback is he a player yeah. what 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 no it's the reason I do this it's a verse from the Bible mm-hmm. oh the Bible oh. best selling book ever old book. yes Bible yeah. yes. yes old yes. old very old very very good book mm-hmm. now um uh, wow, like it's very like, you know, fascinated by any subject, like whatever is the last word in your sentence, she just sort of lingers on that is just like, wow, it really makes you think and like, and then the blonde is just like, very sort of just like flights of fancy and whatever. It's, it's one of those I'm trying to describe the majesty of a summer morning to somebody who's never seen it before. It's just like you have to see it to to believe it. Maybe there's clips on YouTube, but um, I will try to put it on our Tumblr. I yelped when I saw Linda Nano because I I just I love her so much. She's the absolute greatest. So easily my favorite part of Reservation Road was the half a second that I saw Linda Nano because <laughs> she's the best. All Fantastic. Right. Anything else that's on your? Uh, uh, no. Maybe we should move on to the IMDb game. Let's do that. Why don't you describe the IMDb game for a new year to our uh, listeners? All right. As we always reserve the end of our oh episodes, <laughs> the reservation road is the reservation we keep for our IMDb game. Every week we end our episodes with it. We challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of these titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. Sure does. That's the IMDb game. Uh, Chris, would you like to give or guess first? I think I'm going to be giving to you first. Okay. In regards to uh, of late, I have had the spirit of Christmas and the hope of a new year in my heart. Oh, and boy. I have gone easy on you. Oh, wow. Um, so instead of any uh, co-stars that we've mentioned or perhaps a Hollywood Film Award winner, I went down the road of the other road movie that this was <laughs> confused for. I thought about Revolutionary Road, uh, a performer in the film that I believe we have mentioned before as great in the film is one Miss Catherine Hahn. Oh, I love, okay, famously One of the first... our greatest living actresses, Catherine Hahn. It's true. Uh, famously, the first movie I ever saw her in was Reservation Road, which is so funny because, like, She's such a great comedic performer, and that movie uh, is 
decidedly dramatic. Um, I think also the thing this week, I Catherine Hahn is like she's so good at so many things, including yes. um, being horny for Rachel Vice on Actress Roundtable. I was I was just about to bring that up. So that thing on Twitter where somebody faves a tweet of yours from like a year or two ago, and you're just like, I'm glad that thing's still out there. And it was the the screen cap I made of the Actress Roundtable from 2018 where Rachel Weiss and Catherine Hahn flirt with each other throughout the entire uh, roundtable in a way that is incredibly hot. And, like, Catherine's touching Rachel's hair and, like, doing that thing where you're on a date and you find as many excuses to touch their hand as possible, like one of those things. I was uh, just so happy that Catherine Hahn was there, <laughs> that she was included in this roundtable. For private life, yep. She's fantastic yep. in that movie. For the um, exquisite, per- perfect film, Private Life. Absolutely. Yes. So, love Catherine Hahn. Okay. Is there any television? There is two television shows in her known for. Two television shows. Okay. The thing about Catherine Hahn having two television shows is it really could be a lot of different things. Because she's been in popular TV shows where she's had smaller roles, and then more obscure TV shows that she's had bigger roles. But I think one of them is going to be Transparent. Transparent, correct. Got an Emmy nomination, at least one for that. Um, She's amazing on that show. Maybe multiple Emmy nominations for that. Okay, so the other one I'm in a toss-up between her two sort of boutique TV shows, one of which was I Love Dick on Amazon, and one of which was Mrs. Fletcher for HBO, which I watched Mrs. Fletcher. I still need to watch that. She's great in it. It's uh, and it's Tom Parada, so it's just like it's really like well observed. And I think it was underrated for what it did. A lot of people sort of because it's about her and she's empty nesting because her son has gone away to college and her son's an asshole. Like her son is a high school bully and goes away to college and is not equipped to deal with the fact that he's not cool. <laughs> anymore like one of those things where like college Mm -hmm. isn't as impressed by him as he is used to being and a lot of people were sort of like i don't want to learn about this guy this guy fucking sucks i'm like because he sucks that's what that's what's interesting about this i was just like anyway i know um, people despised the tom parada book but i think i've seen a couple people that were like i hated the book and i liked the show i liked the show i didn't it's not wasn't wasn't my favorite show of the year but i really liked the show anyway i think it's i love dick it is not I Love Dick. Fuck! Is it Mrs. Fletcher? It is not Mrs. Fletcher. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, I guess for TV, we've never really had to give years for TV. So I'll give the years it ran, and then the years of your movies. Okay. Okay, so the other television show ran from 2011 to 2012. Your movie years are 2013 and 2016. 2013 and 2016. So neither one of them is private life, which is not surprising because Netflix movies Netflix very movies don't show up. show up. All right. 2013 and 2016. For the proof that they just float into the ether after they launch. All right. And then so the TV show you said was 2011 to 2012. Yes. Is it that Hank Azaria sitcom she did on NBC that like lasted half a season? Obviously, you don't have to answer that. If it is, I don't remember the title of it. So if it is, you have to tell me because I'll never get the title. You got it right. It's a show called Free Agents. Free Agents. And Hank Azaria. Yep. 
That is Never bizarre that that's on her IMDb. That like that got canceled in its first season. Okay, um, at least it made it past December and like rounded the corner into the new she, year. But, I like, think she's had a lot. She's been cast in a lot yes. of shows that don't work. Like she was the lead in the absolutely fabulous US right. version, which I think was like the second time they tried to do it in it US. Was. It was. And, I don't think the pilot ever officially well, aired, but it leaked online. It at least is online that you can see clips of it, and it is so bad. It was the second time that they had tried an absolutely fabulous thing, in addition to the fact that Sybil, the sitcom with Sybil Shepard and Christine Baranski, was essentially absolutely fabulous in America anyway. So, like, they've really, really, really tried to make a go of absolutely fabulous in the United States. Um I think the one attempt was called High Society, and I think Gene Smart was one of the women. But anyway. Oh, wow. Um, so your movies, you have two movies left. It's 2013 and 2016. My issue is, I think at least one of these is going to be one of those ensemble comedies where she's not the lead, but there's a lot of people in it. Oh, is one of them that indie that Jill Soloway directed that is called... Um, shit. That's another one where I'm blanking on the title. All right. Is the other one Wanderlust? No, it is not Wanderlust. Though I feel like I should give this to you because it is the Jill Soloway movie. The what is movie it is Afternoon Delight. Afternoon part Delight. Part of the Juno Temple plays a baby prostitute yes. cinematic universe. <laughs> Speaking of Juno Temple, I finally listened to everybody in my life who said that Ted Lasso uh, was good. And so I started watching Ted Lasso. And Juno it's Temple about sports. Is... I can't do it. It's charming. And Juno Temple is lovely. I also lovely. don't like Sudeikis. I do. Juno Temple, so maybe that's... Juno Temple being good in it is the closest thing that anyone has gotten to selling me on watching that show. Also, the soccer men are so hot. Like, they're just so hot. They're not my type of guy. Oh, boy. Um, more for me, then. Okay, anyway. Okay, so 2016, absolutely stunning that you have not guessed this yet. I'm sure listeners are screaming this. It's an obvious one. I think it's definitely... I wouldn't say the most mainstream thing she's been in, but, like... If you were going to say, hey, this actress to, like, your, uh, I don't know, people who who aren't, like, crazy like us and watch, like, tiny things just because Katherine Hahn is in it. Okay. I'm missing the forest for the trees is what you're saying. Um... I think most everyday people would say this is what they know Katherine Hahn from. Is she the lead in it? No, but she's third build. She's third build. Comedy. Yes. Good comedy. People would be mad at me for saying this, but no. Oh. Um. But it's like really well Attempted franchise, but not like a superhero movie. Attempted franchise, but not a super. I'm pretty sure that they were going to do like they were going to do a whole like marketing blitz for this movie after this movie outperformed expectations. There was going to be like branding, there was going to be wine for this cinematic franchise, there was going to be like home products for this franchise. 
Is wine part of the plot? No. It, it the movie is sold on. The oh, it's title bad, mo- bad moms. Uh, it is bad moms. Bad moms, not bad moms Christmas, but bad moms. Can I tell bad you, moms. I walked out of Bad Moms Christmas. <laughs> I think you have told me that. I was. I should it, watch Bad Moms Christmas. I just hated Bad Moms so much. I Bad Moms. I I enjoyed Bad Moms well enough, but then I got really psyched for Bad Moms Christmas because of the casting of the moms. Right. Um, and it was one of those where I had gone. My it was my annual. I'm gonna go Christmas shopping and then sit in the movie theater at the mall uh, with yeah. my Christmas bags. Um, and I did that for Bad Moms Christmas, and I was so psyched. And it was one of those movies where it's just like I'm not enjoying myself at all. And also, I've got to get home and wrap all these presents, and I've got like you know all this shit to do. And I could you know sit through the rest of this movie but it was just not doing it for me at all and i was really bummed that it wasn't because i wanted more for it wow yeah bad moms that's kind yeah, of a bummer Catherine Hahn, justice for Catherine hahn's known for we we yeah. gotta do better by Catherine hahn absolutely all right well i don't feel super bad that i missed uh bad moms because it does not stick out in my mind uh, at all but your clues were correct okay so for you i went the Jennifer Connelly uh, route and did uh, pick a co-star from one of the films that we talked about, Oscar nominee for House of Sand and Fog. I am giving you Shorey Agadashalu. Oh, okay. I don't think this is going to be difficult at all. Is there any TV? There's two TV. So weirdly okay, enough, so both it's got to be The TV. Expanse and 24. Uh, one of the great uh, swearing performances of uh, of our time, the Expanse. God, I love when she says the word "fuck" on that show. And I don't even watch it; I just like secondhand watch it for my husband watching it. Oh, she swears so well; it's so wonderful. Um, and then what? And what's the other television? Twenty four. You're right. It is twenty four. Twenty four, which also, uh, I re- she was on like the fourth season of twenty four, third or fourth season of twenty four. I think it was fourth playing the mother of this uh, young uh, person who Jack Bauer probably thinks is a terrorist. Uh, but every time she would answer God, the phone, that show. every time she would answer the phone, she would say hello. Like in this very, you know, uh, <laughs> which is just wonderful. All right. And, then well, two- and that was like, that was her prestige follow up to her Oscar nomination. It was. Yes. That was her cashing in on the Oscar nomination, yeah. which is too bad that she couldn't cash in, in a film because, uh, uh, Wonderful. Well, that's going to be one of my other uh, guesses. Um, obviously, House of Sand and Fog is in there. Correct. Uh, she was in. Wait, the I just story. wait, wait. I just need to put pressure on you because you're three for perfect three, score. and whenever I go three for three, you put pressure on me that I could have Listen, a perfect score. I think I got it. I think I got it. What? It's the Nativity Story. It is not the Nativity Story. <sighs> I thought she was like second build in that. Um, uh, yeah, but nobody saw the Nativity Story. Yeah. Mm. Is that Nikki okay. Caro? No, Catherine Hardwick. Yes, it's a Catherine Hardwick movie. Yeah. Playing um, uh, the mother of Mary. Yes. Okay, so she's also played bureaucrats in things like X Men movies. Wait, time out, time out. Sorry, I don't mean to derail because I'm now looking at the cast of. Uh, the nativity, nativity story? story it's wild it's keisha castle hughes but it's oscar, oscar isaac. isaac but also yeah. 
There is a film out there that stars both Shori Agadashlu and Hiyama Bas. Like, fuck yeah, blow my mind. Like, poof, my my head just exploded. The the possibilities. Can you imagine Bas. the two of them just talking to each other? Just like it would sound so sexy. I would melt into the floor. Like, I need. Can, please well, get. Like, my dinner with Andre, but it's Hiyama Bas and Shari Agadashalu just chatting. Just let them talk. I just want to hear them. They're, they're the Hiyama best Bas voices. is currently giving the best performance on television that no one is talking about in Rami. Yeah, she's great on that. She's, she's great on that, and she's great in succession. Like, she's having a really great moment right now. All right, anyway, it was not Nativity Story, despite the fact that it has both Yamabas and Shorega Dashalu. Okay, it. it's got to be something that she's some type of bureaucrat in. Um, she's in the worst X-Men movie that I have seen, and then I bailed. Uh, well, Last Stand, yes. Yes. Yeah. Is it that? No. But not a bad guess. <sighs> okay, so what's my year? Oh, yeah, because you got two wrong. Your year is 2016. Oh, way more recent than I would have guessed. So this is going to be around the time that she is doing The Expanse. I'll tell you, it's not Terry George's The Promise, which she's also in. (laughs) We are pivoting to becoming a The Promise We have talked about The Promise more times than it has ever been talked about ever. Like at some point, (laughs) like a poster of The Promise that is in... uh, in a like basement somewhere just went up in flames because uh because we've talked about it <laughs> because so it has been invoked yeah um okay 2016 but not the promise she's also in a movie that played tiff that i remember just from the title which is called septembers of shiraz which sure makes me just imagine and i'm sure in this case uh uh, maybe it is not referring to the wine, but like it makes me just imagine just like a wine mom just like getting sloshed on Shiraz for the entire. Uh, it should be Shoreg Dashlu's Under the Tuscan Sun, where she just goes and does a wine tour. Salma Hayek, Adrian Brody, Shoreg Dashlu. Like, wow. <laughs> My sleep paralysis demons coming to visit. Okay, me it's tonight. a movie about the Iranian Revolution, so uh, not about wine moms in the. Uh, in the suburbs so yeah probably not as lighthearted as its title yeah suggests anyway what a shame um i would watch that movie um okay 2016 i'm gonna need some more hints i think okay well you were on the right track with x-men so it's a franchise yeah a comic book franchise no it's not the mcu she's not in the mcu right Oh, but you said no to comic book franchise. Um, right. Is it a fantasy franchise? Like Lord of the Ringsy? No. No, but she okay. would have been great in Lord of the Rings. Oh, my God. Absolutely. Would have made me like them. Um, so it's science fiction. Yes. Oh, she is in um, Star Trek Beyond. Star Trek Beyond. Yes. Star Trek Beyond kind of rules. I liked Star Trek Beyond a lot. And I famously didn't hate the second Star Trek that everybody hated so much. Yeah, I didn't that like it terrible. that much, but like I didn't get the hatred for it. I think a lot of the hatred for it came from uh, the fact that they wouldn't just tell critics that it was 
Khan, and they got really mad at that. Um, well, they wouldn't do that, but then in the movie, he's so inconsequential, and it's right. stupid. Even right. even if you knew it, it would have been absolutely stupid. He does nothing in that movie. But like Star Trek Beyond is so much better and super fun. Well, Beyond is like keeps it true to like the Star Trek ethos in that it's very episodic. Like you can watch it without watching the other ones. Yep. Like, and as with almost everything that. As I've mentioned before, Anton Yelchin is in. I just cried and cried and cried when Anton Yelchin's credit yeah. came up in the credits at the end. Uh, Sophia Butella is actually really cool. I'm like she is. our leading Sophia Butella. Yeah, you kind of are. <laughs> I love her. Is she she's in climax, climax? Or yeah, I was gonna say she's in she's climax, like right? the only watchable thing in the Mummy. <laughs> I've not seen the Mummy. I did see Climax. You are uh, though our preeminent uh, climax enthusiast, which uh, I am. Um, I'm very movie. happy for you for that. Um, yes. So I don't remember. I think she's just a bureaucrat. Her character's name is Commodore Paris. Yeah, absolutely. So that's an odd credit for her. There are other things that she's more prominent in. Even, like, if you're going to stick with television, like, for as much as it's just a one-episode one-off, but, like, she's very funny on the episode of Will and Grace that she's on, where she plays Grace's new assistant who just doesn't want to do her work like and just like is very sort of like blase about things and and just sort of rolls over grace and it's very funny um yeah she's great she's the best show her rules we love her all right yeah that's awesome that's our episode on revolutionary road at long last we did it so the circle is complete and now our podcast ends just kidding that's not uh we have too many I other said, great our last episode will be for your consideration. Oh my god, that is true. That will be our last episode. That's how you'll know. Uh, that's how you know a great Catherine Hahn performance in a bad movie. Um, anyway, that's the title of that movie, right? What? The James L. Brooks movie? About? The James L. Brooks movie. How do you know? How do you that's know? That's how you know is a song from Enchanted. Thank you. 2007 Oscars. Uh, yes, How Do You Know is a great Catherine Hahn performance in a bad movie. A movie that we could do an episode on. Yes. All right. That is our episode. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Um, on Twitter at Chris V. File, F-E-I-L, um, and also Letterboxd under the same name. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. I'm on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, Reed spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star error review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility. So please take a break from obsessing on your own vengeance message boards and give us a nice review, won't you? That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Buzz like fireflies. Flying off. Into the night. Oh no, here comes Mark Russell. Alright. I'd like to